Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. How do we tackle our changing climate? As leaders of the world meet in Paris to discuss solutions to that very problem, what are scientists actually doing to help improve our planet, come up with ways to feed our planet, as well as make sure that our emissions are reduced? This week we'll be looking at a number of climate science stories and what exactly scientists are doing to help save the planet. Leaders from across the world have been gathered in Paris, including luminaries from outside non-governmental organisations, plus heads of governments themselves, from many different countries, all through the banner of the United Nations, for the UNFCCC, or United Nations Climate Change Conference. This one's called COP21, or CMP11, and it's a big deal. Why is it a big deal? Well, these conferences are where the leaders of the world gather together to try and agree a target or a plan to tackle climate change. And the only way you do that is obviously with all of the countries actually coming to some level of agreement. You may have heard of the Kyoto Protocols, which is a a long-running series of agreements and steps that was agreed in a similar fashion. But they were a long time ago, and we actually realistically need a new plan. And broadly speaking, the goal of this Paris conference is to to meet the second commitment period of the Kyoto Protocols, which aren't really enough to hold us in the two degrees above pre-industrial levels that we're aiming for. So effectively, now we're looking for our next set of steps to hold us towards that target. And countries such as the United States and China and the European Union, have a big role to play in that. But also countries like Australia and the developing world and the BRICS as well also have important things to, to get across. And under the guise of this major climate conference which is going on, there's also a lot of very interesting research coming about about ways to help the climate and use and extract energy in a variety of interesting ways that could also help us deal with a changing climate and a changing planet. So this week on Lagrange Point, we're going to be talking about some of the stories that relate to helping improve our planet, to help improve our planet using innovative technologies, interesting ideas, and great research to help us achieve and keep the world a stable place for all life, from now and into the future. So you probably realise that one of the major challenges for the climate is the fact that CO2 is being released in larger and larger amounts from our industrial technologies. When we burn things like fossil fuels, they release carbon dioxide. Now this isn't on its own a huge problem, but the problem is what happens to the carbon dioxide as it dwells in our atmosphere. It traps heat inside in an increasing layer, um, and this is the process known as global warming. That trapped heat inside changes our climate in a variety of ways, which can lead to a lot of damage. And we can't just stop using carbon-based fuels because that's a lot of the economy. So therefore, how do you actually turn things around? You want to reduce the emissions of CO2 to stop this CO2 being released into the atmosphere in increasing amounts and trapping more heat and increasing the temperatures. But just telling people, no, sorry, you can't use CO2 or carbon-based fuels anymore is not necessarily an option that people are willing to sign up for in large numbers. So that's, you know, the stick approach where you say actually you have to limit your emissions or limit this or limit that. The carrot approach 
is where you actually give people an incentive, a way to make money out of what they're doing. And carbon credits and carbon sequestration are are things where people give people incentives to actually, either a government or an organization, to sequester the carbon back into the ground or back into the resources so it's not actually in the atmosphere. And there's a really interesting company um, which is based as an Israeli startup called New CO2 Fuels or NCF. And their idea is basically to convert CO2 emissions itself into a powerful fuel source and generate that fuel source using only renewable energy. So put it this way, taking the pollutants from existing coal-fired or CO2-emitting devices or plants or equipments and turning that back into a fuel that can be used renewably and safely and only do that using energy from renewable sources. And so, you know, if you want to think about it another way, if you're driving along your car, instead of just having the emissions go out and pollute the atmosphere, you could be making money by producing more fuel from just simply by driving and using the fuel you've already got. This kind of recovery process actually gives people a financial incentive to invest in this. So it's a win-win situation for all involved. But how exactly does it work? So when you have carbon dioxide emitted, right, and there's a lot of it emitted, <laughs> and you know they estimate there's about $24 billion of potential recovery that you could actually get from some of those emissions of carbon dioxide. So how it works is based around a technology developed at the Wiseman Institute of Science. Uh, and really what they're trying to do is they, they started really by looking at the burning of brown coal and they're trying to figure out a way if we could make something better out of that. And for Australia, this is very relevant, particularly in Victoria, where we have an awful large amount of brown coal, which we don't seem to be stopping burning anytime soon, unfortunately. So the Wiseman technology uses concentrated solar energy. So when you get heaps and heaps of solar energy, right, so from a, from a solar collector of some type, which in Australia, hey, makes sense because we've got a lot of sun, you use that solar energy and you concentrate it down to a beam. And then you use that to disassociate the carbon dioxide you collect in a big tank or a big balloon into its two components, carbon monoxide and oxygen. So this, this using the heat from the sun, so no other real process is there, to break down this pollutant gas you've developed, the CO2, into carbon monoxide and oxygen. And they've developed a process to enable that to happen. Now, while you're doing that, you also disassociate H2O, water, into hydrogen and oxygen, so H2 and O2. So you do both processes at once, and then you mix them. And when you do that, you end up with a mixture fuel, a carbon monoxide and hydrogen mixture, which they call syngas, which is effectively a gaseous type fuel similar to methanol or um, other types of natural gases that you can burn, which you can also then use to power vehicles as well. So what you've actually done then is turned your polluted waste into an exciting new fuel that you can use for yourself, but also sell. So it's a great way to try and turn a really, really inefficient bad solution into something that's recycling and recapturing and giving you something useful in the process. So how many solar panels do you need? Well, they have, they have basically a, a field of solar panels around which heats up the reactor where they're doing this conversion to about 1,000 degrees Celsius. And then they produce the CO2 from that. Now, this is great. You could also do a similar process by, by putting this on a power plant, which is already generating excess heat. So a big brown coal-burning power plant or a steel plant or a gas, gas plant will actually be having lots of excess heat anyway. 
So you don't even need the solar reactor. You just strap it on the side and let that heat it up for you. And when you do that, what you do is you capture all the pollutants from this big furnace that's burning all this coal or what have you, and you feed it into this reactor, heat that reactor, and then it can actually produce the syngas for you once you feed in a little bit of water to get it started. And the syngas that you create in a one cubic meter tank is equivalent to the photosynthesis energy of 300 trees. So, you know, we can do this process already. It's basically what trees do when they convert it, or similar anyway. But you need 300 trees to try and keep up with one little hyper syngas box. So there's a great way that scientists and engineers have come up with of making our existing technology cleaner and better. Yes, it's not the ultimate 100% renewable solution, but it is cleaning up the world and providing people an incentive to do so. And that's something that can't be discouraged. Now, the early bird gets the worm, or at least the saying goes, but more worms could actually be the solution to help save our planet. Now, when you think of it, farming is an important thing that we all depend on. We all need food to live, and whatever we eat has come through a farm at some point. Farming also has an interesting relationship with the climate, because it is very much dependent on the climate being predictable and stable, and when climate change hits, it can really affect farming. That being said, farming has also the opportunity to help improve our planet in many ways. That might seem a little bit strange and counterintuitive. Now, all of this ties back to the lowly worm. Worms are often underappreciated. They are some of the organisms that keep our planet ticking. Carbon content in soil is actually very, very important, um, mostly because it also helps stop the growth of CO2 by keeping it actually in the ground. It also gives something for the microorganisms in the ground to feed on, and it nourishes the plants in turn. So the more soil that captures the carbon, the more vegetable matter that decomposes them and, re- and therefore actually helps improve the yields of the crops. So farmers love that kind of stuff. But in France, and led by some studies from the French National Institute of Agricultural Research, they've determined that, look, even if they just increased by 0.4% a year, the level of carbon in soils, that would almost be enough to stop the current growth in carbon dioxide emissions in the atmosphere by simply putting it into the ground where it can be useful. And a really good way that would actually help was by actually having worms and other microorganisms then able to live in the soils. So how do you keep them alive? How do you get worms to them? Why have they disappeared at all? Nicolas Denel, a farmer from near the western city of Le Mans in France, uh, has been farming for many years. And 10 years ago, when he used to dig up the soil in the ground in his farm, there was no worms to be found. And he was growing corn, wheat, rapeseed, and a lot of other things to feed the pigs that he grows in his farm. But nowadays, his, his farm and the soil in, in its grounds are full of worms. It's not like he's gone out and bought a handful of worms. You can't replicate that much. It's way too crazy. But the problem is, in a lot of Europe, the soil and the farming processes have evolved and changed over many years, but they've also gone through great turmoil. When we industrialized farming, we started to use mechanical plows, which were just the the old school technology of plowing that's been around for millennia, upgraded to be in a more mechanized fashion. 
But the problem is that a plow turns the soil to a depth of about 25 centimetres, which means that you're actually disturbing a lot of the soil. And so, based on some research, they actually decided to try and promoting soil conservation and less disruption. So less uh, damaging disruption, which gives the soil a better chance to survive. And this also changed the way they actually harvest as well. So after a long series of process, a decade of work, where they changed the way they actually planted seeds. So instead of plowing and dropping in seeds behind it, they actually used drills and put the soils deep in using the drills, which actually increased their yield and didn't disrupt all the animals and microorganisms living in the soil. They also, when fallowing a field, which is when you leave a field empty after harvesting, they didn't just leave it completely bare. After a wheat harvest, they put in beans and alfalfa, which help retain the topsoil and improve the full soil fertility. And a decade of work like this, but over around 5,000 farmers in France, has improved the organic level of material in his soil from about 1.5% to 3%. And other farmers have actually improved it to up almost 5%. And that's, that's, that's great. That's like really high achievements. And what it means is now the soils are full of microorganisms and worms, which are helping improve the fertility of the soils. It means they have better yield and they're less reliant on chemicals and synthetic fertilizers, all of which have flow-on benefits for the environment as well. And it improves the carbon sequestration in our soils. And all of this thanks to keeping an eye out and helping those lowly worms keep our soils healthy by looking after them and modifying and improving and tweaking our farming practices as we have for generations in the past and will into the future. The humble grain rice is responsible for feeding billions of people across the world and resting on its shoulders is a huge burden of responsibility. And some researchers out of Oxford University are looking for a way to supercharge rice to make it more efficient by copying efficient traits in other crops and applying them to rice. So what is so inefficient about rice? Well, rice uses the C3 photosynthetic pathway which basically means it has a certain mechanism for using photosynthesis, as all plants do. But in hot and dry climates, C3 is not that useful or productive. C4 pathway, which is used by other plants such as Maine and Sogrim, is actually really, really effective in hot and dry climates. So as the climate changes and, and there's more and more droughts and so on, this is going to be hyper-important. If we could give rice the ability to use the C4 pathway, we could increase productivity of rice growing by 50%. Now, since over 3 billion people depend on rice for survival, and owing to general population increases and trends towards urbanisation, basically the land that currently provides enough rice to feed 27 people will need to support 43 people by 2050. So realistically, we actually need to increase rice yields, so the effectiveness and efficiency of our rice, by 50% over the next 35 years. And traditional breeding programs that we have underway anyway are working and they're doing about 1% per annum. We need to do a lot more if we want to make it survivable and stable. So that's where the scientists at Oxford University have come in and have been adapting and understanding the different mechanisms used for photosynthesis in a number of different plants. And they've found different biochemical and morphological types of enzymes in rice that they can look for, identify, test, and now in phase three of this 
many year long project. They're actually trying to adapt that into from C4 photosynthetic methods into normal rice so that rice can greatly improve its yield. And this is the kind of long-term studies that we need to do to make sure that our planet is ready to adapt to whatever the climate throws at it. So while we wait for the political leaders to make their decisions, scientists are busy working away, ensuring that no matter what happens, we'll still have food on the table. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Improving the way rice works to help feed the planet, getting our farming practices right and improving our worms in our fields, as well as recycling our CO2 emissions to make them into new fuels, are just some of the ways scientists are helping tackle climate change. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.